You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This is uh, Father James Scholl, and I want to continue with a uh, lecture, a relatively short lecture, which is entitled on uh, graduation or on what is practically useless, which is the quote. This was originally published in uh, the Catholic World Report Online on the 17th of May of this year, 2015. It begins with two quotations. Uh, One is from a man by the name of Neil Postman. uh, It's called My Graduation Speech, which is a relatively famous talk, which a professor, I think, from Columbia gave. He said, quote, I think almost all serious people understand that about 90% of what goes on in schools is, quote, practically useless, the end of the quote. And the second quotation is from Aristotle, from uh, a short treatise he had called Parts of Animals. And it says, quote, the scanty conception to which we can attain of celestial things, gives us, from their very excellence, more pleasure than all of our knowledge of the world in which we live, just as a half-glimpse of a person that we love is more delightful than a leisurely view of other things, uh, whatever their uh, number and uh, dimensions, the end of the quote. The late Neil Postman, who died in 2003, was a distinguished professor of communications at New York University. Over the years, like many other faculty members, he attended numerous graduations and heard various uh, commencement addresses, most of which he thought were not particularly good. He understood the reasons for this. Uh, for this outstandingness of typical graduation addresses. The most a speaker could expect of an audience's uh, attentive listening was perhaps 15 minutes. The graduating students were anxious to move on to what Postman calls the revelries to follow. Often graduation speakers were not chosen for their ability to reason or to speak well, but for their accomplishments in other areas of expertise. The ceremonies were long, so Postman could sympathize with the typical graduation speaker, but in the end, he did not think that the students heard much that was important in such occasions. In fact, like E.F. Schumacher uh, in his famous Guide for Perplexed, he did not find much worthwhile in college, in college in general, 10% at best. The reality, the really important thing, was seldom ever uh, uh, broached in universities. In this light, Postman proposed 
a model graduation speech, as it should be, even if it was never actually delivered. He wanted students, in the fading moments of their academic careers, to know finally what the university was for. In this context, as in uh, the passage that I cited in the beginning, uh, he re uh, referred to a common opinion that about 90% of what went on in colleges was practically useless. Now, the reason why I am uh, speaking uh, and giving this uh, reflection is because of that phrase, practically speaking, practically useless. The phrase practically useless strikes an Aristotelian chord in my mind. It also goes back to Joseph Pieper's notion of measure. Could Postman really have meant that the universities were supposed to be useful, that it was to uh, orient itself to what was primarily practical. Aristotle had distinguished the theoretical and the practical intellect. The theoretical intellect was ordered to know what is. The practical intellect was ordained and, and designed to uh, make or do things. The latter was ordered to the former, the practical to the theoretical, but both had their place. Contrary to waves of opinion emphasizing the practical, we do not enter college in principle to learn about useful things. If we do, <clears throat> we are entering something closer to a trade school or a place where knowing how is more important than knowing what or why. We need trade, technology, and engineering schools, but this is not what universities are for, nor are they primarily for research, though knowing uh, what the university is constituted for is, properly, um, is a proper function of the human mind, knowing what it is for. In fact, in the university, we should be looking for what is, in fact, practically useless, or perhaps better put, what is beyond use. The things that are useful are not the most important things, however worthy they are. <clears throat> Aristotle taught us to distinguish between things of use, of pleasure, and of things sought just for their own sakes. These latter were the highest things. Our delight was in the very knowing of them. To know them and their causes is what the mind is for. They were not useful, except in the sense that if we do not know what the world is like, we really can do nothing in it. We cannot really act on something until we know first what it is. A doctor who does not know what a human being is or what his uh, liver is cannot be trusted to operate on anyone. As he says in, the, uh, in both the parts of animals and in the ethics, Aristotle never thought 
that we could know much of the highest thing. But he did not consider this fact a defect or a reason to neglect what we could know of them. Indeed, he thought that knowing what we could of them was worth more than all of the other things we might know about, or which I might know about more completely. We should spend our lives uh, searching for them, the more important thing. Plato had taught us that our whole lives were unserious compared to the highest thing. He thought that God was the only serious thing in the universe compared to which all of the things were unserious. This view meant that the ordinary things uh, were really only of use, but they were not beyond use unless we wanted to know why they existed in the first place. All really important things were for their own sake. That is, they were beyond use. Ultimately, this uh, contemplative status including, included the human being himself, though it was up to him freely to fashion himself into what he ought to be uh, precisely as a human being. In Postman's proposed graduation address, he explained to the students that two approaches to what went on in college can be identified. One was the Athenian approach. Here we learned of that extraordinary period that knew Plato, Aristotle, Thucydides, Demosthenes, Sophocles, uh, Socrates, Aeschylus, Euripides, Democritus, Homer, Hesiod, and many other writers, politicians, artists, poets, and yes, sciences. The Greeks seem even to have invented machines that moved, but they did not develop them because, it is said, they saw the dangers of technology in a way that we perhaps do not. The Greeks taught us language and philosophy, history and poetry. They still make more sense in ethics, rhetoric, and politics than most other things that have been we have learned since. And if we do know what they know, it is likely that we can learn much else in a systematic fashion. The other approach to ed education is what Postman calls that of the Visigoths. These invading barbarians represent the attitude of learning things only because of power and usefulness. <clears throat> we do not matriculate to learn the truth of things. We see uh, the university as a place to attain and keep power. This approach is the legacy of Machiavelli, though this notion was already known to and criticized by Plato. Postman thought that the Visigoths view was uh, prevalent even among academics, perhaps especially among them. Thus, if we attend the university to learn what the Visigoths stood for, we really 
would learn little of real significance. We would not know what we are or what we are about. Postman's schema, the Athenians versus the Visigoths, seems useful. It certainly <clears throat> highlights a contrasting attitude that can be seen in the history of what is called higher education. What he seems to forget is the latter history of the uh, uh, Goths themselves. We might say that he also forgets Rome, which prided itself on learning from the Greeks. <clears throat> the Romans were indeed a practical people who knew what power was and how to use it. But at their best, they recognized with Cicero that the Greeks, whose moral lives might be might have been uh, often wanting, were the masters of thought. The civilization of the Romans was the civilization that conquered Palestine and into which Christianity, with its Hebrew background, was born and developed. <clears throat> it was under the later Romans, as Christopher Dawson pointed out, that the four traditions, Athens, Rome, Jerusalem, and Christianity, uh, began to meld together into a coherent whole. <clears throat> what we know as Western civilization grew out of this extended Greco-Roman world. It was, if we ask today what the word Gothic means, we think of the great cathedrals of Europe. We think of the word infinity as uh, reaching out to transcendence and not, as with the Greeks, as a sign of incoherence. That is, the barbarians were civilized and became citizens in a broader culture of the Roman world that saw itself as universal, embracing all men. This was the culture that did not just include Greek thought and Roman law, but also Old and New Testament revelation. The dynamism of philosophy, the love of wisdom, as we know it, is not just Greek, though that is its origin. Greek thought itself, Greek thought itself is addressed by the uh, content and practice of revelation to um, inquire of their mutual compatibility. So, so uh, Greek thought uh, is addressed to by revelation. The university as we know it arose not directly from Plato's Academy or Aristotle's Lyceum, but from the medieval universities at Paris, Salamanca, Bologna, Oxford, Pisa, Cambridge, and other centers. The problematic of these universities is their founding, and their founding was rather centered on the relation of the content of revelation to what could be known by human reason as the Greeks and Roman legacy understood it. And this legacy included places like Alexandria and Antioch and Carthage. Were the two traditions contradictory or were they compatible with each other? St. Augustine, though an African, was in 
the line of this broader tradition, even if he did not much like to study Greek, as he told us in his confession. We are now accustomed to begin university studies, not with the Greeks, Romans, Jews, or Christians, but with what is called modern thought, with what we now call science, as if science itself had no philosophic presupposition that made it possible in the first place. Why was it, after all, that science did not appear in every culture, but only in that culture with a Greek-Roman-Christian background? This was because science depends on certain theological assumptions that alone make it possible to investigate uh, the makeup of the world. The world had to exist, and it was not just an idea. And to know it, we had to investigate it uh, to find out what it had to teach us. Acknowledge that there were real things in the world that acted. Furthermore, the world was created in time uh, from nothing, but with an intelligible order that is open to the human intellect. It also presupposes uh, that secondary causes exist. Things had their own uh, relative autonomy and stability. They really didn't act. They were not illusions. If behind the world was only a system of voluntarism, as was held in Islam or in later Western novelist thought, we could not be sure that the opposite of anything was not especially, was not equally possible and present before us. We could not trust our senses or the stability of things. Without these assurances, the world uh, was not worth investigating. Everything could be other than it appeared. Today, the dominant philosophy in the universities is not Western philosophy that claims to be universal, nor is it even science. Rather, it is a relativism that professes to begin with the assumption of multiculturalism. No possibility can be found of finding a general truth or even inquiring about it. From this viewpoint, Truth is the enemy of culture. Everything is relative to time and place. We are left with what is only the practically useful in our own environment. We can, however, as Aristotle told us, have only a scant knowledge of the highest things. <clears throat> this knowledge of the highest things is worth more than all other kinds of knowledge that we might have. But in the university, we do not much consider the issues that Revelation address, addresses to reason. Revelation is itself directed to reason as such. Its effect is to make reason more reasonable in figuring out how it is meant and how it relates to other truths. The coherence of a university is measured by the scope and source 
of information that it allows itself and its students to consider in dealing with these fundamental questions about human life and the uh, coherent or incoherent answers to them. <clears throat> these are the classical affirmations in question. The first affirmation at the basis of our culture is the Socratic principle, quote, it is never right to do wrong. The second is the Platonic affirmation that, quote, truth is to say of what is that it is and of what not is not that it is not. The third is that of Christ. Truth alone <clears throat> will make us free. And these questions, then, subsequent questions follow. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is this thing not that thing? Which is my, uh, what is my purpose in my own existence? What and why is evil? And how do we know that God has spoken to us? Why is it that revelation answers questions that arise in philosophy but are not answered by it? What is friendship? What is death? Are we immortal? Then Augustine's question arises, why are, are our hearts restless, even with the many things given to us? And finally, Chesterton's question must be asked, why am I homesick, even at home? If we leave a university in which no such questions were seriously confronted in their philosophical and theological origins and depths, we can rest assured that what we attended was perhaps a fine practical place, but it was not really a university uh, wherein we wondered about things for their own sake. <clears throat> Nor, as I like to put it, uh, there is no such thing as a university in which the constant reading of Plato, both by faculty and students, does not take place. He will guide us to all these other questions including those of Revelation. Postman was right. We need the Athenians. We need to put the barbarians, especially the intellectual ones, in place. But it does not hurt us to wonder, in addition, about those Goths whom the Romans civilized and who built the cathedrals for no other reason than that their spires pointed to beauty itself. If such places are not practically useful, that is why they exist, and to know this uh, is why we exist. The end of the episode. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.